Welcome to Navara Live. I'm Moya Lothian McLean, taking your Tuesday instead of your Thursday this week. And joining me is Ash Sarkar. Ash, good evening. They tried to keep us apart, Moya, but we just keep clawing our way back together. <laughs> We're like magnets. What can I say? And also like magnets are the Tories to cuts, which is why they have slashed social care funding. We'll be covering that in the show. We will also be covering the new water pollution plan or rather anti-pollution plan. It's a big week for Therese Coffee. There's also TikTok being fined and we'll be talking about the ruckus, the media circus, yes, Trump in New York and his latest legal wranglings. Now for our first story. In 2021, the Tories published a white paper on social care in England and in it they promised this. To invest at least £500 million so the social care workforce have the right training and qualifications and feel recognised and valued for their skills and commitment. We want the workforce to also have their well-being prioritised. Well, turns out that promise was worth less than the paper or blog that it was written on. That is because the government has now halved the amount it says it will invest in care workers. The Times reports this. This week, the Department of Health and Social Care said that care workforce investment, including, quote, funding for hundreds of thousands of training places, would be backed by £250 million. There was no mention of the previously announced £25 million to support unpaid carers or the £300 million to integrate housing into local health and care strategies. The government has said its plan will, quote, bolster the workforce and help to free up hospital beds. Helen Waitley, the social care minister, said the package, quote, focuses on recognising care with the status it deserves. She said, quote, care depends completely on the people who do the caring. That's over a million care staff working in care homes and agencies and countless relatives, friends and volunteers acting out of the kindness of their hearts. Don't know if Tories know much about kindness in people's hearts. Now, there are currently about 165,000 vacancies for care workers across England. The job is incredibly difficult. It can involve antisocial hours, huge emotional investment and hard physical labour. Yet care workers who largely work for private companies are paid shockingly low wages. According to the charity Community Integrated Care, a care worker is paid on average £8,000 a year less than an NHS worker with equivalent skills. And according to research carried out by Care England and charity HFT, poor rates of pay are the number one reason that care workers leave all sectors of the care sector. Between 75 and 78% of workers who left their sector cited it as a main reason for leaving. So slashing the amount of money promised for care worker recruitment and training is likely to only deepen the trend of a declining and demotivated workforce. This workforce also happens to be vital and increasingly in demand. More care workers are needed to take care of people at home if we're going to reduce bed shortages and backlogs in the NHS. And the population, of course, is ageing. According to the think tank The Health Foundation, Britain will require an additional 627,000 social care staff by 2031. That is an increase of 55% on current social care worker numbers. 
But the promised deal on care workers isn't the only one the government has reneged on. The £500 million promise was part of a wider £1.6 billion pledge for social care reform made by Boris Johnson. Simon Bottry is a senior fellow at the King's Fund and he told Radio 4's Today programme all the ways the Tories are letting down those in need of social care, which will be most of us one day, as well as the people who provide it. This looks like a, a wide scale retreat from the uh, the scale, certainly, of the original plans and is, of course, deeply disappointing uh, to uh, a social care sector, which is in deep trouble. What the government says is that the reforms are going to give care the status it deserves. Uh, can they now? Well, uh, it's incredibly hard to see how you give uh, the status care deserves by cutting the amount of money and the amount of support that you'd uh, promised 18 months previously. You've also got to remember that uh, the government's already postponed its its wider reforms, the introduction of a, a cap on lifetime care costs uh, and, uh, and, and uh, an increase in eligibility so that more people would have been entitled uh, to publicly funded support. Uh, both of those measures have now been uh, postponed until uh, October 2025. So, you know, the government has previous uh, on, on this and there's very little here that gives any indication that this is going to raise the status or do much to, to, to significantly improve the state mm. of social care at the moment. Because what they are going ahead with is a care certificate qualification and a bit of funding as well for training places. But I, I guess if you're still losing people because the basic pay is so bad for so many of them, that, that doesn't really make much difference, one would assume. Yeah, I mean, again, on the basis of what they've said, there are some positives in here, in, 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 in the, the focus, for example, uh, there the will be uh, some uh, money for, for workforce and some money is better than uh, no money. Uh, there's also an investment in digital and that seems to be the one area uh, that that, uh, that is relatively uh, untouched and actually where the government has got some quite positive uh, uh, things to, to, to say. But overall, this is a package uh, that comes at a time when uh, when all the trends are going the wrong direction. More people People are requesting support, fewer are getting it. We have the highest level of, uh, of staff vacancies since uh, um, uh, records uh, began. Uh, and public satisfaction is at its lowest level ever, ever recorded. So it's incredibly hard to see how this is a, 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 a proposal which is going to make a massively significant difference to social care. And that's what it needs at the moment, a really significant reform, wholesale reform uh, and significant amounts of extra money. Seems to be a government that is ruling by delay. Every single policy they announce, positive and negative, is always postponed to about 2025 when it's very likely they won't be in charge anymore. This is a government that's putting off all major decisions. But let's pretend this is going to happen. So, you know, they've betrayed some of the most essential yet poorly paid workers in the land, and not to mention the thousands who rely on them. What do the Tories offer us instead? vacuous nonsense is the answer. This video appeared on the Department of Health and Social Care's Twitter feed this afternoon. I want people to recognise social care as a career rather than just a job. We're launching a call for evidence on a new career structure for the care workforce, providing clear defined roles supported by training. I'd like to learn a little bit more about what my qualification can get me helping raise standards across the country. It is achievable. If I can achieve it, anyone can. <laughs> what is a call for evidence? What does that even mean? What are they trying to say? 
We don't need a call for evidence for a new career path, which would be no doubt equally poorly paid for social care workers. We need investment. We need higher rates of pay. We need better support for the people already doing the job. Ash, what is a call for evidence? Do you know? I think I know what a call for evidence is. And this is actually a very clever strategy, Moya, because... Paying carers the wage that they deserve to work very antisocial hours in often very demanding jobs, that's expensive. That costs money. But kicking the can down the road on announcing anything new, which might require some of that funding, well, that's very cheap. So long as you come up with a totally vacuous deferral technique like calling for new evidence. The Tories do love a deferral technique and one of the main proponents of deferrals, as I've said, is also one of the people who is behind all of this ultimately, Chancellor Jeremy Hunt. It was his spring budget last month that contained virtually no new money for health and social care, despite the crisis in the system. And of course, he has form in this area. As health secretary during the austerity years of the Cameron administration, Jeremy Hunt oversaw the decimation of health and care services. But two years ago, in a Newsnight interview with Emily Maitlis, he gave a pretty good impression of having had a change of heart. Social care is another one. Look, without getting into the politics, I did believe that it was necessary to make very painful cuts in public spending in 2010. But in retrospect, I can see that the cuts to social care were in a way the most silent but also the most devastating. And, um, you know, and I think that when the government comes forward this year with its plans for social care, I really hope that we put it on a sustainable footing going forward because I think it's desperately important. I can't recall if that interview happened around the time Jeremy Hunt was running for leadership, but that sounded a lot like regret. Did it not? Am I ears mistaken? Ash, if Jeremy Hunt is so cut up about, well, the cuts that he imposed, why on earth is there no new money for health and social care? And why is he effectively, in real terms, cutting that budget once more? So what you saw in action just then is a classic conservative technique of shape-shifting. So when you are in government, you enact the most brutal cuts to public services possible in an act of what is essentially reckless vandalism. We all knew that cutting uh, NHS capacity, that cutting uh, the social care budget was going to have disastrous effects on people's lives. And that was even before the pandemic. Everyone could see that plain as day. We could see that the Lansley reforms, which came in before Jeremy Hunt's time as health and social care minister, was basically creating a balkanized system within the NHS where you would end up with different bits of it competing to shunt patients around in order to protect their own little bit of budget, their own little bit of capacity. And the people who end up losing out, of course, are those who are in need of care. And we saw this happen before the pandemic. We saw that with every single worsening winter crisis. We saw that with worsening outcomes for older people. The fact that you had so many older people and also long-term disabled people in hospital beds because there was nowhere else for them to go. We saw that in a real state of deterioration before the pandemic. And then around 2019, 2020, two things happened. The first, obviously, is that 
Jeremy Hunt's wing of the party is spectacularly disempowered by the rise of Boris Johnson, who comes in and starts making promises of a more interventionist style when it comes to the economy. That was a big bit of his pitch to the Red Wall, his sort of, you know, lurch into a kind of populism. And it was something which was electorally uh, successful. Didn't follow through on a lot of that stuff, but it was something that he promised and it was something which was relatively popular. And then the second thing that happens is, of course, the pandemic, where the catastrophic seeds of Jeremy Hunt's and Andrew Lansley's various reforms, again, just replace the word reform with vandalism to the NHS, it resulted in absolutely devastating uh, death rates for us as a country. Um, We saw what happened when people from hospitals were released into care homes without testing. And we also, I think, saw a silent crisis of relatives and friends who work as unpaid carers for their long-term disabled and elderly relatives um, and loved ones, is that even more pressure has been piled on them. And lots of those people carrying out uh, that kind of labor are older themselves. Um, they're often people uh, who who have care needs themselves, and they're the ones who are taking up this work. So within that context of Johnsonism wins on a more populist platform, and also uh, the pandemic lays bare the sheer folly and cruelty of Jeremy Hunt's time in office, um, those two things have really, you know, they they did mean that he wanted to uh, pitch himself differently, that he wanted to come across as, you know, a moderate who was capable of self-reflection and being sensible. Because of course, that's what, that's what every Tory was doing between, you know, 2019 and 2020. That's the Theresa May model. That's the Rory Stewart model. It's look at the things you're responsible for while you're in office and then make kind of sad noises about them. Now, Of course, uh, following on from the trustafuck of last autumn, Jeremy Hunt's been brought back in as chancellor and he's got no ideas. He is going back to the only thing that he knows, which is cutting the budget of essential services because that's supposedly good for the economy. Now, that's horseshit. It's total horseshit. It was horseshit between 2010 and 2019, and it's horseshit now. It's horseshit particularly now, because we do have an aging population with worsening healthcare outcomes. There is a massive need for care services. And at the moment, those care services are not only lacking when it comes to staffing and retention, and that's something which you can address with pay. But also, if you're either the person who needs care or the person who is helping that individual access care, it's really difficult and dispiriting. And I would honestly say quite traumatizing. And this is a problem which is only going to get worse. So You've got this huge demand for care services. You've also got an impact that lack of care is having on the economy, which is that you've got people who are working less than they could or even not at all because they're having to take on unpaid 
care work. And you've also got the massive disruption to the economy that's coming with further automation and AI. Care work is going to be one of the few areas of employment which is going to grow in its demand for human labor. Now, any sensible chancellor would be going, okay, this is going to be a really important part of our economy in coming decades. And also there is just this screaming human need for care. This has got to be a top priority for us. It absolutely has to be a top priority for us. But Jeremy Hunt, newt of little brain that he is, has gone, nah, just going to cut the budget. That could be somebody else's problem. And I wonder, I wonder if there is a bit of um, recklessness or callousness about that because the Tories are languishing 20 to 15 points behind depending on the day and they're going well why should we invest it's going to be Labour's problem anyway what's interesting is if it is Labour's problem one of the few manifesto commitments that so far uh, Keir Starmer's Labour seem to have brought over from the Corbyn era is that of a national care service where streeting was trumpeting the idea, um, even in, I think, September 2022. And that National Care Service would be, according to the proposals they put forward thus far, publicly funded. They even talked about potentially bringing care homes that are owned by private equity into public ownership. But with Labour's increasing uh, desire to jump in the bed with private business, it remains to be seen whether they com- stayed committed to that. But given the landscape right now, it looks like that could be happening. So we'll have to wait, sadly, until the next election to see whether that actually comes about. But in the meantime, as you've covered, Ash, Jeremy Hunt is not going to be the solution to the national care crisis. Next story. England may be a green and pleasant land, but its waterways are a literal shit show. The scandal regarding England's polluted rivers has rolled on for several years now, and it can be hard to wrap your head around the scale of it. According to government research, not a single river in England can be given a, quote, clean bill of health, i.e. there's not a single unpolluted river in the country. They are all contaminated by a, quote, chemical cocktail that includes raw sewage, microplastics and slurry. So how did this noxious mix get there? Well, England's private water companies are responsible for hundreds of thousands of raw sewage discharges into the waterways. Last year alone, there were over 300,000 sewage spills in England's rivers. And the government has long been under pressure to do something about this sorry state of affairs. Today, Environment Secretary Therese Coffey unveiled a grand plan to clean up England's rivers and beaches. Water is vital for life, for our human health, our wildlife, and for the economy. We all need access to a safe and reliable supply of clean and plentiful water for our homes, businesses, leisure, and the environment. We've made huge progress on water quality in the last decade. Our bathing waters continue to get cleaner. Last year, 93% were classified as good or excellent, up from just over 70% in 2010. But we detected there was a problem on sewage. We took action. We have a plan to tackle sewage from storm overflows, which will require the biggest ever investment into water infrastructure of £56 billion. Yet our water system is under more pressure than ever before. Growth of our population, of business and climate change means we need to do more to provide a steady supply of water in a warming climate. We already supply 14 billion litres of water a day. 
by 2050, we will likely need an extra 4 billion litres per day. So we want to go further and faster on tackling pollution and we want to ensure plentiful supply. And that is why I am launching our new integrated plan for delivering clean and plentiful water. We are accelerating investment by water companies to upgrade infrastructure, to help supply and to tackle pollution. And we are getting stricter on enforcement with potentially unlimited penalties for water companies. We will innovate to help farmers continue to grow food, particularly in drought areas where water is in such short supply, just as we did here on the Felixstowe Peninsula, working with farmers to make the most of precious fresh water to sustain their crops in these thirsty, sandy Suffolk soils. Our plan needs all of us to do our part on how much water we use, on tackling pollution, and to care for the water wildlife needs too. Together, we can make sure we all have access to clean and plentiful water now and for generations to come. Some nifty little slights of hand there. According to Dries, 93% of England's bathing waters have been rated as good or excellent. Well, maybe that's because bathing water is a specific status that requires more rigorous testing for pollution in an area. In March, research carried out by the Liberal Democrats discovered that DEFRA, the department that Therese Coffey heads up, has been rejecting most applications for bathing water status. In the past 14 months, only two out of 21 applications for the status has been granted. And there's about 600 bathing water sites across England and Wales, most of which are located on the coast. But the special denomination doesn't protect a body of water. This is from The Guardian. Data shows there have been 340,581 hours worth of sewage spills in bathing waters, totaling 52,653 separate spills in the last two years. Very easy to say our bathing waters are clean if you don't denominate any new bathing waters at all. Beyond these specific bathing waters, the government's new plan is going down with campaigners like a lead pipe dumped in the River Wye. Here's what Fergal Sharkey, former pop star and now a leading advocate for tackling water pollution, had to say about the proposals on BBC Radio 4's Today programme. This is being presented today by the government as a plan to clean up our waters. Will it do that? Um, I'm afraid not. Um, if I was being kind, I would suggest that it's one of the most muddled, confused bits of strategy and policy I've seen in some time. Um, as you've already said, the wet wipes' announcement has actually been made three times in the last five years. Nothing happened. The supposed £1.6 billion investment, well, does that supersede the £3.1 billion investment announced last August? And does that supersede the 2.7 billion before that and the 12 billion before that? It, it is, I'm afraid, just to me feels very much like an act of desperation by a Secretary of State coming under increasing calls to resign and deal with the situation in the run-up to the local elections. But the point about investment is really important, isn't it? Because the investment in the sewage network is what one hopes prevents, you know, it makes the sewage network more able to cope with these times of heavy rainfall, which is what causes the overflow, usually. Um, well, it is. It, it is. And it's something to ask the industry because the UK government was actually taken to court 10 years ago by the European Commission. And the commission, the court found that the UK was acting illegally by allowing water companies to dump sewage during heavy rain. And by the way, last year, we now know the figure was 1.7 million hours 
there was a drought last year. Even the Environment Agency have said that these figures have nothing to do with the industry. There was a drought, people under hosepipe bans. That's simply an excuse by the industry. You mean the fact that the figures figures have improved, sewage spills have gone down, is because we didn't have as as much rain last year rather Uh, than because of changes? and, And that, I'm actually quoting the Environment Agency, that was the statement they made and it's one I agree with. I think the thing that I'm curious about the industry... Of what the regulator a year and a half ago wrote to the industry, telling them that we as bill payers have provided them with all of the funding needed for 30 years for them to meet their legal obligations to deal with this sewage system. Clearly, that hasn't happened. Clearly, I would ask the question, what happened to our money? Where has it gone? And can we have a refund, please? We'd also like a refund. And if uh, off we're listening, I can send my bank details over post-haste. Well, according to critics, Coffee is basically admitting defeat with this brand new water launch. While she was promoting the plan, she said there was, quote, no way to stop water pollution overnight, ruling out, for example, upgrading the sewer network to avoid future spills because it would add hundreds to people's bills. Maybe she missed the news that water bills in England will be rising by an average 7.5% a year anyway. But no fear because the government is planning a consultation on banning wet wipes. Bad news for Keir Starmer. It would be welcome if that hadn't already been announced as a policy three years ago. Then there's the £1.6 billion of accelerated investment from the very companies that caused the problem in the first place. Where is that money coming from? Where's it going? Well, earlier today, I spoke to John Bosco Nuba, lead campaigner at We Own It, an organisation which promotes the public ownership of key national utilities. And I began by asking why there is so much critique surrounding the government's latest plan for water pollution. For most people, it's because it's an insane plan. And of course, uh, part of the reason why I chose the word insane is that we tend to define insane as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result every time. Um, the government has been doing exactly what they've promised or they've announced today that they're um, going to do. And it's just not worked. Regulation has utterly and completely failed to deal with the problem of um, sewage being thrown into our rivers and seas by these private water companies who have no incentive at all um, to do the right thing uh, for our water system. Does this plan see private water companies handed any more money? Where is this uh, 1.6 billion accelerated investment coming from? Is it the water companies themselves? Or is it coming from the government? Is it a mix? It's coming from the government. And, and in essence, what that money does is it um, lets private companies off the hook. Um, over the last 25, 30 years since our water system was privatized. And we've seen private water companies extract um, around 72 billion pounds in profits from our water system, on average around 2 billion pounds a year. Since 2015, the water companies have only been fined around 140 million pounds, um, which means if you're a private water company, pouring sewage into our rivers and seas is the smart business thing to do. It means you get to pay a very meager fine, but you take billions of pounds away in profits. It explains very much about why private water buses um, tend to be paid quite a lot. Um, on average, they are paid about um, 1.7 million pounds a year. It's incredible because they're doing a good job for shareholders. They're not doing enough 
for the public though. That's why public ownership has always been um, the right um, way to run our water system. And to be honest, it's the right way to run our public services as a whole. Yeah, I wanted to ask particularly about this idea of fines and the government's new plan that they've outlined. Then supposedly uh, the water companies that breach regulations will be hit with more fines. But is it that it would actually just be more profitable for these water companies to pay up these fines and continue with what they're doing? Yes, it will. I mean, obviously, we don't know exactly what the government means by more fines. We've seen today um, Theresa Coffey suggesting that they may be forced to pay, quote unquote, unlimited fines. Um, so we don't know exactly what the government, um, what unlimited fines look like for the government. What we do know, though, is that so far, the government finds these companies at such a rate that paying the fine is the smart business choice for them, as opposed to actually trying to fix our infrastructure, to invest in the infrastructure, to make sure that they're not throwing um, sewage into our rivers. On average, over 800 times a day, um, at least in the last year, we know that we're pouring sewage into rivers and seas even more times last year than they're doing this year. So in, a, in, a, in, a, in essence, the government's policy thus far um, incentivizes private water companies not to invest in our water infrastructure. Um, obviously, we know that if, this, uh, if the water was in public ownership, we would be investing a lot more in the infrastructure. And this is not theory. Scotland's water is in public ownership. Scott water, or Scott, uh, Scotland Water is the most trusted um, public utility in the entirety of the United Kingdom. They've invested about £72 per Scottish family more than the English water companies have invested in our water infrastructure. If the English water companies invested at about the same rate, by now they would have invested about £28 billion more than they did invest um, in our water system. So it's clear that public ownership would actually bring about the kind of investment in our water system um, that we need to deal with this problem. At the moment, where do the profits from England's privatised water systems go? At the moment, about 72% of our water system in England is owned by foreign companies, um, foreign um, uh, public sovereign wealth funds and private equity um, investors which is really interesting because obviously um, sovereign wealth funds are in effect um, public ownership by another term, by another word, but public ownership obviously by another country. So we have Abu Dhabi owning parts of, I believe, seven water. Um, we have um, the Chinese sovereign wealth fund. We have the Qatari sovereign wealth fund. And we have a few others that own shares in our water companies. And of course we have BlackRock very notoriously um, owning shares in some of our water companies. It's incredible that if you look at the model for um, the water system in England, it's not your typical privatization model, really. Usually the idea is, well, how do you make profit when you run a business? You bring down your costs, um, you try and bring in um, a lot, as much revenue as you can, and the difference between your costs and your revenue um, are your profits, and that's how you make profits. But the fact that our water system in England is mainly run by private equity companies that essentially make money not by kind of this interplay between profits, uh, between costs and revenue, 
but by financial engineering and restructuring the finances of companies um, kind of tells us all we need to know about why this system is not working. It's not working because its primary goal at the moment is to make money for companies across the world. And we're not suggesting, of course, that our water system is much better held by British private companies. They have exactly the same interests. And in fact, some of our um, water is already controlled by British private companies. And the problem is not going to be solved by some kind of, if you like, nationalistic capitalism around our water. Um, it will be solved by taking the water system into public ownership and even more importantly, running it with an ethos of public service as opposed to running it for the profits of companies and countries across the world. Labour have mooted setting up a publicly owned energy firm, I think similar to the sort of model that is present currently in Wales with their water supply. If this was applied to our water system, does that go far enough, do you think? I don't think so at all. Um, obviously, England and Wales, in terms of water, are very different. Wales is, of course, um, very small compared to England. And because of the way water infrastructure um, operates, it's impossible to create an equivalent of great British energy, right? In, in, in the energy sector, it's possible for the, comp for the um, government to create a company that it uses to kind of influence the market and move it in the right direction. And we think that great British energy is a move in the right direction, although it's not 100% of what we would like to see. So that's, I think that great British energy works in, in energy. It might work, something to that effect might work for water in Wales because of the size um, of the country at play. But here in England, you don't have a choice who you buy your water from. Essentially, the water companies that provide water to families and households and businesses across the different parts of England have a total monopoly. Um, not just because they're the only people that have the licenses to provide water in those areas, but because we just have a particular set infrastructure to distribute water in those areas. So it just would not work in water. What would work in water is um, taking the water system totally into public ownership. At the moment, actually, what's really interesting is that to take our water system into public ownership, we need to give the water companies 25 years warning before we can do that. It, that is utterly ridiculous. Um, and of course, we totally understand when people talk about how um, taking the system back to a centrally controlled um, body might not work. Um, we are totally in support of some kind of municipalization of the uh, ownership of our water systems. It's working in France, in Germany, in the Netherlands, and in other parts of Europe. So, I mean, there is really no reason whatsoever not to take our water into public ownership. What is the public support for renationalizing the water supplies like at the moment? And is it just political will that isn't there when it comes to ob an obstacle to doing that? I would say that it's the lack of political will um, at the moment. According to our last poll um, from last year, late last year, which was um, incidentally the largest poll that has been done on the subject in terms of the sample of people that were polled. 69% um, of the public, including a majority of conservative voters, um, support taking our water into public ownership. 
I totally understand, well, I suppose I should say I understand to some extent um, that Kia Stammer is nervous about making funding commitments um, around water um, because, of course, I imagine that it's still ringing very much in their ears how um, the Tory press will say um, that they are going to be costing the Exchequer 150 billion pounds to take back water companies. But the reality is that we could take back these water companies much more cheaply than has been mooted around um, um, the mainstream press. A parliament would set the price of the shares of these companies and buy it at a fair market price. That is the right way to do it for energy. That's the right way to do it for water. And we don't think at all um, that there would be any cost. In fact, I think given the popularity of the policy, the Labour Party would stand to benefit enormously from doing something serious and not at all radical. At this point, taking water into public ownership would be the pragmatic thing to do because it's what would work. We've tried literally everything else and it's clearly not working because the incentive structure is all messed up. Thanks to John Bosco for that very in-depth and comprehensive interview. Now on to our next story. Former US President Donald Trump has just entered a Manhattan courtroom to face criminal charges. On his way to court, he has posted this to social media, and this is straight hot off the press. So Trump says, quote, heading to Lower Manhattan, the courthouse, seems so surreal. Wow, exclamation mark. They're going to arrest me. Can't believe this is happening in America. MAGA. He has a turn of, whatever you can say about Donald Trump, he has a turn of phrase that is unparalleled by any other political leader. Uh, Last week, a New York grand jury, of course, agreed to indict Trump, meaning that they believed there's enough evidence to bring criminal charges against him. Now, the exact nature of these criminal charges are currently under seal, meaning we won't know them until the arraignment begins shortly, which is happening while we're on air. But according to the New York Times, there's at least two dozen counts in that indictment. What we do know is the charges are likely to be related to a 105,000 payment made to adult performer Stormy Daniels in 2016. The cash was paid by Trump's attorney at the time, Michael Cohen, and was supposed to keep Daniels quiet and about an affair she says she had with Trump in 2006. Trump has always denied the affair. Now, there's nothing illegal in the payments themselves, just sleazy, but the way that Trump's accounts recorded that hush money payment as a legal fee has led to him being accused of falsifying records. And that is because the money that was originally paid to Daniels was from Cohen's own funds, and it was then repaid to Cohen under the guise of a monthly retainer for legal fees. The New York Times reports this. The prosecutors also raised questions about Mr. Trump's monthly reimbursement checks to Mr. Cohen. They said in court papers that Mr. Trump's company, quote, falsely accounted for the monthly payments as legal expenses and that company records cited a retainer agreement with Mr. Cohen. Although Mr. Cohen was a lawyer and became Mr. Trump's personal attorney after he took office, there was no such retainer agreement and the reimbursement was unrelated to any legal services Mr. Cohen performed. Trump may also be charged with violating election law. The New York Times goes on to say this. In New York, falsifying business records can amount to a crime, albeit a misdemeanor. To elevate the crime to a felony charge, Mr. Bragg, who is the New York District Attorney, prosecutors must show 
that Mr. Trump's intent to defraud includes an intent to commit or conceal a second crime. In this case, the second crime could be a violation of election law. While hush money is not inherently illegal, the prosecutors could argue that the $130,000 payout effectively became an improper donation to Mr. Trump's campaign under the theory that it benefited his candidacy because it silenced Miss Daniels. Whatever the charges turn out to be, Donald Trump is once again center stage of an enormous media moment. What you're seeing here is the media lineup surrounding the Manhattan courtroom ahead of Trump's appearance here. Journalists from across America and from around the world have turned up to report on the former president's every move for the short period that he'll appear before the judge. And make no mistake, it will be a short period. What's going to happen is the judge is going to read the charges and then Trump will be bailed before returning to Mar Alego, as I like to call it. And from there, he will address his supporters later tonight. So, what about the politics of all this theatre? Well, Corinne Clark Barron is a conservative activist and she told Sky's Kay Burley what the indictment meant for Trump supporters. I think this case against him is more of a reason for him to run. It reminds a lot of us who supported Trump in 2016 and again in 2020, it reminds us why we did support him. And it is because a lot of this system that exists, this corrupt system, hates Trump. And a lot of Americans are fed up with that system. It reminds us that they don't like him because they don't like us and we don't like that corruption. I think that we'll see his polls continue to go up thanks to this case. And you'll also see a lot of uh, unifying message messages from all of the other potential candidates on the Republican side, because this is such an outrage, this politically motivated case. And you'd see even the, you know, the second in line, Ron DeSantis, he knows he's not going to politically benefit from this taking out Trump. He has to stand in solidarity with Trump because Americans are outraged by this case against him. The indictment certainly seems to be playing well for Trump when it comes to next year's Republican primaries. Polling by business intelligence company Morning Consult reports that 55% of potential Republican primary voters would actually back Trump for the Republican presidential candidate. That reflects a three-point bump since the indictment was announced last week, and it puts the former president nearly 30 points ahead of his closest contender, Ron DeSantis, which is quite interesting. Obviously, DeSantis was ahead back in the day, and now Trump has taken over. Still, some Democrats are seeing Trump's indictment as a triumph for the U.S. justice system. Calvin Dark is a U.S. Democratic strategist, and he told Sky News this. Well, I think that no matter what uh, particular political affiliation one has here, it's not uh, a proud day. This is not a good look for the United States to have a former president um, in the courtroom. But it can be a positive for our country as the world sees how justice is supposed to happen, how there are the grand jury, American citizens who voted to indict a private citizen, and that private citizen will have an opportunity during a trial um, to mount a defense, and then we'll have a verdict that'll be fair. So I think if we can do that, um, then we'll show the world how justice is supposed to work. But like I said, from a partisan angle, that really doesn't factor into my calculation because um, it's not a, a day to be overjoyed no matter who you support um, politic politics-wise. Wow, with Democratic strategists like that and curious talking about it's a bad look for America. Who actually needs 
conservative candidates in the first place. Ash, do you think the US liberal establishment sees this indictment as a win? And if they do, should they? Well, what we know about the US liberal establishment is that they always had this faith that the system would swoop in and remove Trump from politics. They thought that it was going to be the Mueller investigation. And of course, that didn't happen. Uh, They thought that it might be some impeachment proceedings. and That didn't happen. And now there's a lot of faith being put in this particular uh, set of indictments, which will become unsealed later on today. Now, First, the pinch of salt, which is that this is a really complex legal case, and it has been going on for quite some time. In fact, uh, Mr. Bragg, who is the attorney, the New York, uh, the New York district attorney working on this case, is not the first district attorney to have uh, worked on a uh, investigation against Donald Trump. There was a previous uh, DA who had tried. There had been a uh, grand jury in the offing and then they pulled back from it and then you had other senior prosecutors resigning from the Manhattan DA's office uh, because there was a sense of this was a real failure, having bottled it, having not put together a strong enough case. uh, It was something which was seen as deeply embarrassing to the Manhattan District Attorney's office. So the fact that this uh, indictment has gone ahead can signal two things, and it depends on your perspective. The first is that this will be a much stronger case. Um, it's been so embarrassing before and has you know, led to the resignation of two very senior prosecutors that they simply can't afford to get it wrong this time. So the prosecution is very confident of the case that they'll later present in court. And then there's another one, which is sunk costs fallacy, which is we spent a lot of time trying to get this guy. The previous case that we were going for was a bit weaker. We've got to be, you know, in the words of Denzel Washington, like I'm leaving here with something. So those are the two ways in which you can look at it. Of course, you've got this really uh, compelling piece of evidence, which is the testimony of Michael Cohen, the fact that he'd admitted to making the payment in 2018. And it means that you've got different legal avenues you can pursue. The first is on the... uh, accusation of falsified business records, which would constitute a form of business fraud. And the other is about campaign financing. So these are the two avenues which are which are available. But what do we know about the American justice system, right? If you've ever watched The People versus O.J. Simpson, uh, or indeed practically any episode of Law and Order, it's that if you are a very wealthy man, as Donald Trump supposedly is, you can afford to retain the very best lawyers that money can buy, you can delay, you can defer, you can perhaps buy your way out of accountability. That's not going to be anything which is new to the American justice system, and it's certainly not something which will have been invented by Donald Trump. The other card that he has to play is, of course, using this to enhance his political credibility amongst an increasingly radicalized Republican base. So as that polling you showed demonstrates, he is someone who is presently ahead of Ron DeSantis. And while a criminal indictment is unlikely to endear any of the Republican moderates, the so-called never-Trumpers, who were tempted either into staying at home or indeed switching their vote to Biden in the 2020 presidential election, 
the fact that you have got um, you know, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office uh, pursuing Trump, that this is going to be seen as something of a win for the Democratic establishment. That is something which is going to, you know, deepen those seeds of conspiracy. Now, we've talked about this on Navarra Media before in our interview with Nikki Wolf. The specific and precise conspiracy that this feeds into is that of QAnon. QAnon, just for the, you know, blessedly, uh, uninformed is a conspiracy theory that there is an elite network of high-ranking pedophiles ensconced in various positions of power within the American establishment, and that there is a American uh, member of the security services who had been uh, posting on message boards these cryptic clues hinting at a day of reckoning that was going to expose and bring down this elite pedophile cabal. Now, rather than really being a single conspiracy theory, what QAnon's been able to do is absorb new events into its own worldview. So a really important development in the QAnon conspiracy was this idea that Donald Trump was going to be the one to drain the swamp and, you know, hit go on the kind of eradication of this pedophile cabal. And so that didn't happen, obviously. Um, but every subsequent, you know, point at which this thing doesn't happen, that gets then reincorporated into the conspiracy theory. So you have something like Donald Trump being indicted by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, um, and they go, "Oh, this is the deep state trying to stop him from exposing this pedophile, you know, cabal." And this is something which might sound really silly and laughable and absurd to. British ears, but it's something which really has found purchase amongst a lot of card-carrying Republicans. Is something which has, you know, led to the meteoric rise of uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and it's that kind of conspiratorial edge of the GOP who are really going to find their worldview validated by the mere uh, indictment of Donald Trump on criminal charges. And when you've got all of those things happening in the context of, of a country which has already seen unrest uh, on January 6th, and also the sort of intimidation of uh, ballot counters during the 2020 election, that's something which is is pretty scary. Keep following that Fox News Dominion lawsuit because more juicy bits will be coming out soon. We don't have time to dive into it as much as I'd like right now, but we will be moving on to another story that is plaguing America and is spreading across the Western world. Next story. TikTok. It's emerged as the most dominant social media app of the so-called Gen Z. That's young people aged between 8 and 23 years old to all of us elderly folk. Now, the short form video app's reach is huge. It's predicted to reach over 800 million monthly users in 2023, according to marketing platform Insider Intelligence. Already, TikTok is the third largest of the big five social networks. It's beaten only by Facebook and Instagram, and it is the most popular social media app in the US. Nearly 67% of American teenagers, actually 67% of American teenagers use it, nearly 70% of American teenagers are also TikTok users. These are the kind of figures that represent a cachet of extremely 
valuable user data, which is now causing headaches for TikTok because the app is owned by a Chinese company called ByteDance. And surprise, surprise, Western countries have begun to eye it with suspicion as a result, saying that it could present a security threat. ByteDance have repeatedly denied that any accusations that it passes user information to the Chinese government or that TikTok is, quote, an agent of China. Now, that hasn't stopped the panic, though, in the likes of the US, Australia and the UK. TikTok has been booted from government devices. You may remember Net Zero Minister Grant Shapps uploading this bizarre and defiant TikTok when that news was announced. You know what? I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. The show goes on. This is my home. They're going to need a wrecking ball to take me out of here. Now, I don't think any special advisors were involved in making that. I think Grant Shapps, I can sincerely believe that he is a big fan of the Wolf of Wall Street, especially given that little trailer he dropped the other week. Now, America might be going even further than a ban on just simply government devices because bipartisan support is snowballing for a nationwide ban on the app if its Beijing-based owner doesn't agree to divest from the company. TikTok CEO, Sho Zishu, faced a grueling Congress hearing in March and he faced grilling about supposed ties between ByteDance executives and the Chinese Communist Party. The line of questioning seemed to be pretty xenophobic at times, such as this exchange between Republican Congress Dan Crenshaw and Chu. In other words, ByteDance and also your TikTok employees that live in China, they must cooperate with Chinese intelligence whenever they are called upon. And if they are called upon, they're bound to secrecy. That would include you. So Mr. Chu, if the CCP tells ByteDance to turn over all data that TikTok has collected inside the US, even within Project Texas, do they have to do so according to the Chinese law? Con Congressman, first, I'm, I'm Singaporean. Um, that's fine. Quite an incredible failed gotcha there. Uh, oh, there was another moment when Arizona Representative Debbie Lesko started asking Chu about the persecution of the Uyghurs. Do you agree that the Chinese government has persecuted the Uyghur population? Well, it's really concerning to hear about all accounts of human rights abuse. My role here is to explain what our platform does on this. It's a pretty easy question. Do you agree that the Chinese government has persecuted the Uyghur population? Congressman, I'm here to describe TikTok and what we do as a platform. And as All a right. platform, we allow our users to freely express All their right. views on this issue Earlier and any today, other issue that matters to them. Well, you didn't answer the question. While there's been no parallel TikTok hearings in the UK yet, today it was announced that the company is being fined millions of pounds for, quote, multiple data protection breaches. Now, the key charge is that TikTok has failed to prevent over a million children who are under 13 years old from using the app in 2020. And then collected their data without parental consent. TikTok has a minimum age requirement of 13. But the Information Commissioner's Office says the company didn't enforce this properly from 2018 to 2020. 
As a result, the ICO has slapped TikTok with a £12.7 million fine to be paid into Treasury coffers. Maybe we can actually fund some services with that. However, this is half the amount the company was originally threatened with in September 2022. And it's pretty small change. BBC reports that ByteDance made an estimated £80 billion in revenue in 2022. TikTok doesn't exactly agree with this fine. They released this statement. While we disagree with the ICO's decision, which relates to May 2018, July 2020, we are pleased that the fine announced today has been reduced to under half the amount proposed last year. We will continue to review the decision and are considering next steps. Ash, is TikTok being unfairly targeted because of geopolitics? The answer is yes, and the answer is also no. So the answer is an obvious yes, in that TikTok is not any worse an offender than any of the US-based social media apps, which has unfortunately colonized our brains and eaten up into our uh, attention spans. All right. When you think about the kinds of uh, data uh, misuse and harvesting by the likes of uh, Facebook or indeed Google or, uh, you know, Twitter for that matter. TikTok is pretty much doing what every other social media platform before it has done. If you want to look at the issues around safeguarding of children on TikTok, which I do agree, they're really serious in terms of young people being exposed to social media, uh, before they're old enough to and without parental consent, these are again problems which have also existed on Instagram and uh, on, on Facebook as well. So TikTok is not unique in how bad it is. The one thing that has made it um, an object of uh, US attention and you know, subject to these congressional grillings is the fact that you know, its parent company, ByteDance, is a Chinese-based company. Um, the argument, you know, just to do the whole devil's advocate thing, the argument is that uh, any company which is based in China is uniquely beholden to the CCCP in a way that US-based companies are not beholden to the US state. But again, we've seen uh, Facebook um, behave in absolutely atrocious ways. Um, varying from operating in the full knowledge uh, that a company that it bought Instagram uh, had led to the decimation of adolescent mental health and done absolutely nothing, all the way to amplifying misinformation on Facebook, which helped contribute to the ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya in Myanmar. So there isn't something which is, you know, jumping out and screaming at me saying that TikTok is worse than these other companies that the US is not considering banning within its own borders. I think it's also quite ironic that TikTok is actually banned in mainland China. But yes, Ash, as always, thank you for joining me and thank you for such succinct, insightful analysis. No one does it like you. Don't tell the other colleagues that, but no one does it like you. I was going to say, I bet you say that to all the Navarra gals. <laughs> never and thank you everyone for watching this evening come back tomorrow night for another live stream maybe we'll just show the entirety of donald trump's hearings all two minutes of it but for now you have been watching navara media good night this broadcast is brought to you by navara media go to navaramedia.com 
support.